The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. We began by asking the question, who has the final authority in life? And we learned that God himself has the final authority, meaning the right to demand obedience. And we learned that God doesn't derive his authority from anyone or anything. As the creator of the universe, he's the ultimate source and the foundation of all authority. So we said, okay, that's great, but how can we know God's mind? He has the ultimate authority, but how do we know what he's thinking, what he desires, what he requires? And we learned the only way is through revelation. Just like you can sit and stare at me right now, but you don't know what I'm thinking unless I reveal to you what's in my mind. And we learned that in the same way, that unless God reveals through revelation what's in his mind, we could never know his thoughts. And we learned that there are two types of revelation. There's general revelation, meaning it's generally available to all humanity. And it provides a general, as opposed to specific, knowledge about God. And what were the sources of general revelation? We said they're mainly two. Nature, through creation, in other words, and through our conscience. So we can learn some general realities about God by looking at creation and some general truths about God just from our own consciences. Um, and we learned that that general revelation accomplishes essentially three main things, three main functions. It reveals God's glory. Every tongue, uh, every language can understand uh, the, by looking at creation. You don't have to have any um, education whatsoever to look at creation and recognize certain elements of the nature of God. Also, we learned that it renders people accountable before God. We all have the sense of oughtness, the sense of should, and we all acknowledge that we have not done everything we should do. And we also learned, thirdly, that it stabilizes society with a foundation of morality. We all have this general sense, agreement that, yeah, there are things we should do and should not do. And so that's our starting point. Now, we may disagree on what those things are, but we all agree that there are things that you should and should not do. So that was general revelation. And then we began to look at what we called special revelation. And that's knowledge of God that is increased in specificity. Remember that word last week? Specificity. I hope you used that word a lot this past week. Made people think you're smart. No, smarter. You're all smart. You wouldn't be here if you weren't smart. Um, it's knowledge of God that's increased in specificity and clarity. And what were the sources of special revelation? Well, we learned last week the living word, meaning Christ, a God in flesh. We learned through particular revelations, and we discussed things like prophecy, tongues, interpretation, words of knowledge, words of wisdom. So particular revelations, and those are words that are personally, not universally applicable. So there's the living word, particular revelations, and then the written word. And remember we said, finally, we're talking about the Bible. Three weeks into this series on the Bible. Come on, Darren, get with it. And we concluded last week with three questions. We said, which do you believe? The Bible contains the word of God? The Bible becomes the word of God? Or the Bible is the word of God? And we said there are difficulties with all three of those. Um, but the majority opinion, I shouldn't say majority, the conservative evangelical view is the third one, that the Bible is the word of God. But we're going to trip you up a bit today by pointing out, well, let me say this. I hold in my hand a Bible. It's an English translation of the Bible. It's the New International Version. It's the version I use, and I'll explain in next time we're together why I use this version and the differences between all the versions. But let me say this. 
If you are here today and you are holding an English translation of the Bible, strictly speaking, this is not the Word of God. <gasps> what are you saying? I'm saying that this is not the Word of God, strictly speaking. Right now you're angry at me, but you won't be in about half hour because I'll explain that to you, what that means. So before you write letters to the board, just wait. All right, so today we're talking now about special revelation. We're talking, we're getting now into specifically about the written word of God. We're talking about the inspiration of the Bible. What is meant by inspiration? When we say the Bible is the inspired word of God, what do we mean? Well, 2 Timothy 3.16, the Apostle Paul wrote this to a young pastor named Timothy in the second letter that we have, and he said this, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So as your outline says, inspiration, what do we mean? It's the process by which God directed individuals to produce his written words to mankind. So it's the process by which God directed individuals to produce his written words to mankind. Why is inspiration important? It's important for this. It's the inspiration of the scriptures that grants the authority to the scriptures. Remember, this is all built on authority. Who has the authority? God himself. Well, how do we know what's in his mind? Through general revelation and special revelation. Okay, so it's the inspiration of scripture that gives scripture its authority. It's the fact that the scriptures are God-breathed that gives them their power, gives them their authority. They come from him. Okay, they're his revelation. Well, how does that happen now? Okay, how does that happen? Okay, people right here in the table right in front of me, you are in the spit zone. Congratulations, you're very brave people, obviously. Um, I'm going to sign you a project, okay? Uh, I'm speaking in two Sundays again, uh, on the Sunday before Halloween. And uh, I'm speaking on the topic is entitled, Monsters Under Your Bed. I'm going to be talking about fear because that's a big theme in Halloween. Here's your assignment. I want you to write my sermon. Okay, you have to write it, but they have to be my words. Okay, you write them, but they have to be my words. That's your assignment. Get back to me. Um, how do you do that? How do they write my sermon? They're my words, but they write them. That, folks, is the challenge of inspiration. That's the dynamic of inspiration. And that's the challenging question we're going to do our best to answer today. By the way, 2,000 years of discussion, and there's really no agreement on how that happens. I'm going to give you the best explanation I've heard today, but I have quotes. We probably won't have time to read them today. I have the Catholic response. I have the Lutheran response. I have the Calvinist reformed response. And all of them are saying, we don't know, but we know that's what's happened. We're not sure quite how, but we, we agree that this is what's happened. Though I am going to share with you, time permitting, uh, at the end, the best uh, philosophical, if you will, answer to that question that I've come across. So... How can this be done? Well, this is the dynamic of inspiration. Um, it's the challenging question we're going to try to ask. Here's a key. Number two on your outline. It is the text, not the author, that is inspired. 
Remember this. It's the text, not the author that's inspired. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, all scripture is God-breathed. So it's the text that is inspired, not the author. Meaning, when we look at scripture, it's not, when we talk about inspiration, we're not talking like um, Shakespeare was inspired or like a poet is inspired or an artist is inspired to paint something. That's not what we mean when we talk about inspiration. It's the text themselves. Now, God did move upon these individuals and we'll be talking about that a little bit later. They were carried along. It talks about when a prophet prophesies, they're carried along. And that's the Greek word for wind blowing in the sails of a ship. But it's the, when we're talking about inspiration, it's the text themselves, the words that are inspired, not the authors, the words that are inspired. So now, as your outline says, 2A, when we speak of the texts, we're speaking of the original text referred to as the autographs, not the copies. So they're called the autographs, is what scholars call them. Okay, so meaning, meaning Paul sat down and he wrote uh, 1 Timothy, okay? Actually, let's go with 2 Timothy, since uh, that's what we quote is 2 Timothy 3.16. 3, so when Paul sat down, he probably was pacing, as I imagine, because he, he dictated his letters, um, tended to. So uh, he's pacing around, and, and my table of scribes here, they're writing it down, and I'm Paul, I'm dictating it, and you have the, uh, the autograph, you have the original copy there, you're writing it down, and then we scroll it up, we roll it up, we seal it, the parchment or the papyrus, whichever, and we send it off to Timothy in the mail, okay? That is the autograph. That alone is inspired. That letter that I dictated, I'm Paul, I dictated that letter, you copied it down, that is the inspired scripture. Now, it gets to Timothy, and Timothy takes the autograph, the original one, and people say, well, this is, this is from an apostle. Can we turn this off, uh, Andres? This is on this projector. Uh, and so that, oh, that's better. Um, so the autograph itself is inspired and then copies were in it. He made a copy and then somebody else, uh, you know, made another copy and then somebody else made a copy and then copies were made of the copies. Okay. And so on and so on. And this goes on for thousands of them. Okay. So which is the word of God? Not these. Only the original autograph is the inspired one. Because as these are copied, mistakes can be made, errors can be made in copying, so on. So when scholars talk about the scriptures and the word of God they're and being inspired, they're talking about the autographs. You know, in fact, we are more, this is where we actually um, share this view with the Muslims. A Muslim will say that when you have the Quran, in fact, if you see an English translation of the Quran, it will say um, a translation of the inspired Quran. And, and exactly, so they will say that only the, initial, the original Arabic is actually the Quran. 
We actually have the same view when it comes to Scripture when you get right down to it. Only the original Greek letter that Paul wrote is actually the inspired text. Only the autograph is inspired, okay, strictly speaking. And in the Old Testament, only the original Hebrew or Aramaic texts were inspired. Only the autographs are the, strictly speaking, the Word of God. What we have in your translation is only as authoritative as it is true to the original. Are you following that? That's important to understand this. Okay? Now, some of you are right now scratching your heads and you're thinking maybe a little bit of panic starting to rise up. Well, hold on. Do we have the original? No, we don't. We do not have the original autographs. They deteriorated long ago. That's a couple thousand years. Papyrus, parchment. Okay, they, 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 we don't have them. Maybe we'll find one someday. Wouldn't that be incredible? But uh, we, we don't have them. We only have copies of copies of copies. So, oh boy, so how do we know that what we have is close to the original? How do we know? In fact, there are people out there, one famous individual, Dr. Bart Ehrman, a former evangelical, now atheist, um, really popular author who writes against scripture now, and, uh, and he's made claims, made statements that there are more, like, there are 138,000 words in the Greek New Testament. He said, with the manuscripts that we have, we actually, there are more errors than we have words in the New Testament. He's right. Oh, no, that sounds terrible. We have more errors than we actually have words? Yes, we do. Now, here's where statistics, a layperson can hear that and think, oh, no. And that's what he plays on. He feeds on people's lack of knowledge in this matter. To make people think, oh, then we don't have any idea what Paul really wrote. No, not at all. The reason why we have so many errors is because we have so many copies. You say, well, how does that help? Well, think of it this way. I write a sentence. The dog is big. Okay? That's the original. That's the autograph. Someone copies it. The, now notice the T and the is wrong. The dog is big. Someone else copies that copy, um, and they make the H wrong. The dog is big. And then someone copies that, and they make the E wrong. The dog is big. And I keep going down the list and keep making one mistake in each sentence. Okay. Now, I have four. Let's do one more. The... Dog, and this time we spelled dog wrong. Dog is big. Okay. We have five different statements, five different errors. Do we have any doubt about the size of the dog? No. We know the dog is big, even though we have five mistakes in five sentences, five copies. Why? Because we are able to take all the copies we have and compare them, and it's called the science of textual criticism. And criticism, in this context, is a good thing. <laughs> criticism uh, means the making of informed judgments. And scholars today, through all the manuscripts we have, through textual criticism, the science of textual criticism, are able to get down to and compare them all and say, in fact, and, and say, you know, we know. In fact, the, the number that I've had quoted in a couple textbooks now that I've studied and heard um, and heard quoted in debates and not refuted, even by Bart himself, 
is that uh, of the 138,000 New Testament words, only 1,400 are in doubt. And of those 1,400, nothing has anything to do with any doctrine or teaching. It's issues like um, where it says in 1 John that your joy may be full or our joy may be full. We're not sure which it is. It doesn't affect anything, essentially. And um, in fact, I heard in one debate, a gentleman was saying that Ehrman, who makes these claims, you know, we have more mistakes than we have words. And so he was on a radio show once. And the radio guy said, so Dr. Ehrman, tell us, what do you think the Bible really says? What do you think the New Testament really says then? And Dr. Ehrman said, what do you mean? He said, well, you said that we don't, you know, there's so many mistakes uh, that we have that we don't, you know, so if there's so many mistakes, what do you think the real message of the New Testament said? He said, well, it says exactly what we have. We, we know through textual criticism that we know it is what we have today. You see how misleading it can be. And so I say all this to tell you that, listen, we can be very certain that what you have, in fact, the number I've heard quoted is 98, 99% certainty that what you have, when we talk about the Greek text today, what we have is 99, 98 to 99% certain that it is the original, close to the autograph, which is incredible, incredible. In fact, uh, I started studying for this series back in the summer, back in the spring, actually, and I listened to a guy named Dr. Daniel Wallace, who's the Associate Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. And this is what they did in his courses he teaches on this subject. They would give all of his students a piece of paper, an old apocryphal writing, whatever, an old Greek text, and that what they would divide his classes into different groups, teams, like tables like this. And they'd say, all right, you all have the same autograph, same original. Here's what I want you to do. Each table, change it. So change the words for theological reasons. So you, for whatever reason, you have a different theology than what's written there. Change it a bit. And also, you're a slob, so skip a line or two. So we want you to copy that, copy it, but change some of it for theological reasons and skip a line or two because you're lazy when you copy. Okay? So they all did that. Now everybody... Hand in the autograph so that you no longer have the original anymore. Hand in the autograph. Now we just have your copies with mistakes. Now we're going to pull all together our copies, and we're going to see if we can find, through comparing the text, if we can get back to the original. And he said, and I quote him, we've done this 35 times, and in every time we've returned to the original except for two words, all or two, T-O-O. That's the status of textual criticism now today, the science of textual criticism. So I tell you all this so you can be confident that when you're reading the New Testament specifically, they say the Old Testament were 90% certain. Um, And the Dead Sea Scrolls was a huge help there because we were able to go back a thousand years earlier than any copy we had before and found the accuracy was incredible. So when scholars talk about the inspiration of the Bible... Um, We're talking about the original text. We don't have the autographs, no, but we have 98, 99% certainty that what we do have, the Greek texts that we do have, are 98 to 99% certain uh, close to the original. And the stuff that we're not certain about doesn't affect any teaching whatsoever. So, as your outline says, number three, when we're we're talking about uh, inspiration, scholars use three key words. Then we're going to look at what these words are and unpack them. Um, The first one 
is plenary. Plenary, what's that? That's a fancy word. Plenary. Okay. Inspiration is plenary, meaning complete all scripture. So plenary means complete, complete all scripture. That's what plenary means. Okay. I want you to clean your room, and I want it to be plenary, <laughs> completely clean. You'd never use that word in that context, but I'm just thinking off the top of my head. Okay. So when we talk about it, we mean uh, every word. So in Matthew... Uh, 5.18, Matthew 5.18, let me read that passage. This is Jesus talking. And Jesus said, uh, let me start at verse 17. Don't think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And we learn in 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. So when we talk about uh, inspiration, we mean plenary, meaning it is complete. All of the Bible is inspired. And second, number four, inspiration is verbal. Verbal. Meaning the very words are inspired, not just the concept. So the very words are inspired, not just the concepts. Meaning, when people who say, well, you know, the Bible contains the word of God. And they'll talk about, well, you know, so there are concepts that God wanted to get across. And it's not the words themselves, but just the, the general idea that is inspired. No, that's not what we mean by inspiration. It's verbal, meaning the very words are inspired, not just the concepts. For example of that, uh, and how Jesus clearly uh, believed that, look at John 10, verse 34 to 36. Um, Actually, skip that one because that one has a theological bend that'll get people twisted a bit and it'll get us off track. Go to Galatians 3. Galatians 3, 15 to 16. This is the Apostle Paul talking. Look what he does here. He says, Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. I'm reading from Galatians 3, 16 now. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, plural, meaning many people, but and to your seed, singular, meaning one purpose, one person, who is Christ. Look at this. His whole theological argument is based on one letter. One letter. He says, notice, scripture doesn't say, and to your seeds, but to your seed. And he says that seed symbolizes Christ. So inspiration is verbal, meaning the very words are inspired to the very tense. And the, and, and the, the very, um, they're singular, plural, the very words chosen were chosen specifically and they're inspired. And next, number five, inspiration is, here's another fancy word, sorry, but I want you to know the words that scholars actually used. Confluent, C-O-N-F-L-U-E-N-T, confluent. Inspiration is confluent, meaning it's the product of both divine and human activity. Both divine, meaning God, 
and human activity. Okay? This is where we, again, go back to, we go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21. Listen to what Peter describes here. It says, we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you'll do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Carried along. That word is used to describe the moving of a ship's sails in response to the wind. In fact, look at uh, Acts chapter... 27, and write down on your outline there, Acts 27, 15, and 17, because here's where that same Greek word was used, Acts 27, 15, uh, I'll start at verse 13, when a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete, before very long a wind of hurricane force called the northeaster swept down from the island, the ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along, that word driven along is the same word Paul, uh, that Peter used for what a prophet experiences, okay, so it's the word for wind in the sails. And so here we have this confluent thing where it's, it's the divine and the human activity working together, carried along somehow. Now, see what I just did. We just took a word in the New Testament, a Greek word, and we drilled down on it. Why does that matter? Because the very words are inspired. It matters what they wrote because those were words that God himself wanted used. And so it matters what word was used. Now notice, we didn't just look in the English because different English translations have different words perhaps for that. That's why, what, strictly speaking, what's the word of God? It's the original autographs. And these, as we're going to learn the next time we get together, these are attempts at doing our best to translate from the original Greek into English today and trying to, to translate what the thought was into today's thought. But the original word was not English, it was Greek. And it's only the original words that are inspired. That's why we say, maybe now you're not as angry at me when I say, this English translation, strictly speaking, is not the word of God. It's the Bible translated into English. But the word of God, the inspired scripture, is the original Greek autograph. And this is an attempt to translate it into English. So, that's why when you study scripture, there's some different tools I would recommend for you, okay? And, and um, this is for free. This isn't on your outline. And here, here's some, some suggestions that you should have. Um, I would recommend that you have a, more than one translation. And uh, so translations... And I'm going to talk next time we get together. I'm going to put a spectrum here from one extreme to the other. 
Uh, one meaning real formal translation, and the other meaning more dynamic, and I'm going to explain what those mean, and I'm going to put famous versions of the translations of the Bible on the spectrum, show you where they are, and, um, and explain how all of them serve a great purpose. There's not one that's always good and not one that's always bad. Um, but So I recommend you have various translations uh, on the spectrum, and I'll explain that next time we get together. I recommend you have a Bible dictionary. If you don't own one, you should buy one. A Bible dictionary. I have an example here. I have one at home, and I have this one in my office. It's called Unger's Bible Dictionary. And uh, what a Bible dictionary is, every word, and essentially every topic that's in the Bible, basically, is here listed, and then it explains, okay, so high place, um, Hezion, Hill, uh, Joseph, and all the Josephs in the Bible, and where they're found, and their background, and so on. And so when you're studying something, you turn to this, a mantle, manuscripts, Dead Sea, you know. So Bible dictionary, you want to study scripture, you should have a Bible dictionary. Um, you should have access to a Hebrew and Greek lexicon. Now what does that mean? You can get this online and I'll show you where. That is, okay, so, you know, Darren, when you're quoting from Greek words, did you study Greek and Hebrew? Yes, though I don't remember any of it. Um, so, but what I do is I go to a Greek or Hebrew lexicon. Um, or, or, so, take this down, uh, www.bibleapps.com. Dot com, I think. So B-I-B-L-E-A-P-P-S, BibleApps.com. That's where I go. I have that on my computer. And I go to BibleApps.com, and there's... In fact, the last day, I'll have it up on the projector here, and I'll walk you through it. But you can click on one where it says INT, which means interlinear. And you click on that, whatever verse you're wanting to study, I click on interlinear, and it has all the different translations of the Bible, and then it has the original Greek, and underneath the English words, and then it, I just click on the Greek word, and it takes, tells me the definition, all the places it's used in the Bible, and it's fantastic. You can study all this. It's free. It costs you nothing. That's free. Bibleapps.com, and it's got commentaries, which is another thing you should probably have. Commentary. So, say you're studying Ephesians. Uh, just on your own. I think you should have a couple translations if you want to study it. Uh, Bible dictionary, decide to, uh, for questions. We've got Paul and Ephesus. What, where was Ephesus? Why, you know, what's Ephesians about? Have this so you can study it word for word. And a commentary. So here's the letter to the Ephesians by uh, uh, an author, Peter T. O'Brien. And so, for example, when I studied Ephesians with you, I used this. This helped me a lot. You say, I don't know what, what's a commentary? A commentary is a, a scholar who goes verse by verse through it and gives you background on each verse and different arguments and different uh, teaching for each verse. You say, well, I wouldn't know where to start. No, I often don't know either. Uh, a person I often go to is, is Dr. McNelson on our staff, Mick. So if you're saying, I don't know what, I want to study 1 Corinthians and I don't know, is there a good commentary? I recommend you phone Mick or email Mick because that's his, his role here is he's our discipleship ministry director. And, uh, and say, Mick, give me a couple recommendations. 
you would recommend for a commentary for studying Ephesians? And he'd probably say, well, how deep do you want to go? Do you want to be real scholarly? Do you want to be more devotional? And he'll find somewhere on that continuum there and recommend a commentary for you. So if you want to truly study scripture, then those are things that I would recommend for you. Let's keep going. So how did God manage... Uh, to direct individuals to produce his written words. By the way, how's my sermon coming along here? Pretty good? Okay. Um, Three possible um, theories of inspiration, okay? Number one is what's called the dictation theory. The dictation theory. Okay, I'll write that down since I've kind of got you addicted now to me spelling it for you. Dictation theory. And that is... God told the authors what to write and they wrote it down. God told the authors what to write and they wrote it down. That's the view that Muslims have regarding the Quran. Um, Personally, I don't know of anyone who actually holds this view regarding the Bible. But that is a view that's put out there as a possibility. Now, this gives you verbal. Remember we had the three verbal, plenary, confluent. This gives you verbal... And it gives you plenary, but it doesn't give you confluent. So yes, every word, yes, all of it, but it's not the working of God and men together. See, the critique of of this is it doesn't explain the nature of the clear confluence, the, the, the differing style of the individual writers. When you read Paul and read Peter, it's clearly written by two different people. So we can look at, and scholars... With textual criticism, it goes down to the words that they use and, and the styles that they use are clearly different. They, professionals study this stuff, and they can tell different authors write, writing different books. And even the way they use tenses and so on and so forth, of Greek tenses. It doesn't explain the greetings in the various letters, like the conclusions in Romans, for example. When we went through Romans here, and at the end, he says, say hi to this, say hi to them, say hi to them, and so on. I mean, really, Paul, or God really was dictating, say hi to Flo- Chloe, and really? Um, and there are elements, now there are elements of dictation in the scripture. When prophet says, thus saith the Lord, that that is dictation, God is saying that. But the rest is clearly not dictated. You see in Luke, Luke declared that he did research before writing. He says he researched, he interviewed, and so on. He did his research, and then he wrote. Paul's letter to Philemon was casual and friendly, as opposed to a dictated treatise, treatise kind of a thing. So there's the dictation theory that God told them what they wrote. In other words, okay, Paul, take this down. Here we go. You ready? Copy this down. No. I don't know anyone who holds that view. Secondly is the accommodation theory. The accommodation theory. The accommodation theory. Um, This God accommodates himself to the limitations of sinful mankind. So errors and omissions can be expected. God accommodates himself to the limitations of sinful mankind. So errors and omissions can be expected. So this view holds that God communicates through general concepts, not specific words. This is, so they would say, well, the Bible becomes the word of God or contains the word of God. This view is often held by those of a more liberal persuasion uh, regarding biblical scholarship. It gives you confluent, it gives you human and divine activity together, but it doesn't give you verbal and it doesn't give you plenary. 
So it gives you confluent, but it doesn't give you verbal, it doesn't give you plenary. And the orthodox view is verbal, plenary, confluent, or the generally accepted evangelical conservative view is uh, verbal, plenary, confluent. Critique of this view is just because God condescends to man's level to communicate his truth doesn't mean that God has to compromise or pollute his truth. You can adapt to human limitations without making errors. So it's not necessary that you accommodate and have to have errors. And brings us to the third one, which is the most popular one, supervision. The supervision theory. God supervises or oversees the process in such a way that the author spontaneously writes. Oops. Spontaneously. The author spontaneously writes what God wanted included in his written word. Supervision theory. God supervises or oversees the process in such a way that the author spontaneously writes what God wanted included in his written word. This third theory is by far the most popular one. But it leads to the big question. How can you arrange spontaneity? I mean, isn't that impossible? And basically, over the centuries, this has remained a cloudy area for theologians. I've got three quotes that uh, from Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Reformed, or Calvinist view that I don't have time to read, but they're all saying the same thing. We're not sure how it happened, but that's what we believe, that it did happen. But here's the view that I've heard proposed um, that I, works for me, and uh, it is a theory. Am I saying this is how it happened? No. Uh, I'm saying this is how I think it happened or how some scholars have proposed it happened. It's completely logical and rational. Um, is it the way? We don't know. But uh, remember we, when we talked about omniscience, we talked about something called Molinism, which is something called middle knowledge. And what's that? When we talked about God having knowledge, omniscience, we talked about that God knows what could happen. He knows everything that could happen. So he knows every possible thing that could happen. Um, number three, notice I'm leaving number two blank for a moment. Number three, he knows what will happen. So God not only knows what could happen, he also knows what actually will happen. In between those two is one in the middle. And that is God knows what would happen. It would happen. So if A happened, because he knows everything that could happen, if A happened, God knows what would happen as a result of that. So in other words, as we said before, that um, God knows what you would be like if you were a Muslim woman in the 14th century living in Syria. He knows what you would be like if you were an Amish man living in Elmira, Ontario, in the late 1900s. He knows what would, you would be like if you were a fan of the Toronto Maple Leafs in the 23rd century. And you would still be waiting for a Stanley Cup. <laughs> so he knows every possible contingency. That's called middle knowledge. He knows what would happen in every possible situation. 
Well, if that's true, and it's completely rational, I, I think that is part of God's knowledge. He all, not only knows what could happen, he not only knows what will happen, he knows what would happen in every possible situation. Remember, Jesus said, if, if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen what you have seen, they would have repented long ago. It didn't happen, but it would have if they had the same circumstances. He knows what could, will, and would happen. It's called middle knowledge. And it's called Molinism because a guy named Molina sort of formulated it uh, centuries ago. Okay, so with this in mind, let's apply middle knowledge to the challenge of inspiration and see how it addresses the problem. This is the last box in your outline. God knew what he wanted written. So God knows what he wanted to be written. God knows that. He knows what he wanted written. Number two, God knew what individuals would freely write under certain circumstances. So God knew what individuals would freely write under certain circumstances. So he's not dictating it. He knew if he put them in these circumstances, they would write X, Y, Z. And so number three, God put those individuals in those circumstances and let them freely write. God put those individuals in those circumstances and let them freely write. That is a completely rational way where you get verbal, plenary, confluent inspiration. Let's open it up for questions in the last, for, for five minutes about what we've talked about. Yes? I know you don't have time. <laughs> So the question is, how do we know the books we have in our New Testament are the proper ones? We are actually going to spend a whole session on that. Yes, John. Uh, you uh, dropped a gem last week, which uh, has puzzled me for many years. Oh, let me ask you where I find the answer. Okay. If your right hand, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Right. So the guy would uh, go to heaven with possibly no eyes and no hands and stuff like that. So, remember we quoted the, the, the adage, when common sense makes the best sense, seek no other sense or you get nonsense. And that's clearly hyperbole. It's a figure of speech. Not the sentence I just said, but the, the pluck your eye out. If your right hand offends you, because it's better to go into to, to heaven without a, a right hand than to go into hell with all your hands and so on. It's hyperbole. It's a figure of speech. And Jesus used these all the time. And we use them all the time, you know. Um, come on, uh, don't make me kick you in the butt, John. Or you got a chip on your shoulder. These are all figures of speech that we use. Okay? Yes? Is there a difference between a dictionary and a concordance? Excellent question. Thank you for that question. Is there a difference between a dictionary and a concordance? Absolutely. A concordance, I have you know, a concordance at the back of my Bible. What a concordance does is it tells you in English where the word women is and where the word... What's after that? Uh, womb and wonder and so on. So it tells me where in English I can find those words. Now, there's a thing called the Strong's Concordance, which is where the English words are, and then it'll link it to the original Greek or Hebrew words. So that's a bit different. But a, a, a concordance simply tells me where the English word is located in the English translation I'm using. A lexicon 
is where the is the Greek word behind that English word, no matter the translation. And a Bible dictionary gives me um, the meaning and the context of that, that English word in the whole Bible as well. So a concordance just tells me where the English word is, as I understand concordance, where the English word is in the particular translation I'm using. And that really doesn't get me anywhere. A thesaurus? Um, give me another word for thesaurus. Just kidding. Um, a, thesaur- a thesaurus, all that does is, um, again, compares English to English. And it really doesn't help you get to the original autograph. And for example, if you have um, a, um, an amplified translation of the Bible. So, you know, an amplified translation is it gives you the, the, the a translation. And then for some words, it'll have paragraphs and give you three other synonyms for that word. And we make the mistake of thinking all three of those synonyms could be used, but that's not true. And so that's why it's important to get back to the original Greek word and what was that word used. And just because in English it could mean three other things, we think we can just drop any of those three words in the amplified translation and say, okay, so any of those three I could insert. No, that's not necessarily true. So a thesaurus gives you English to English, but it doesn't get you back to the original. Yes. Back horn. Well, as we'll, we'll see, you're saying you have a translate for people listening on the podcast. You have a translation that tries to take the Greek tenses and put it into English. So without jumping too far ahead, I said next time we're together, I think it's next time or the time after, I can't remember how I've worked it out in the series, but... Um, There's formal translations, and there's dynamic translation. The formal is the more word-for-word. Dynamic is more thought-for-thought. And so you're talking about a real formal. To study, that's very important. To read, it's very difficult. It doesn't make sense, because Greek isn't written like English. Greek, the words can be in any order. Um, So it's good for studying, really bad for reading. Follow up quick. Yeah. Yeah, so you're talking verb tenses. You know, like scripture says in Ephesians, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now in English, in the Greek, it literally means be continually filled, an ongoing thing. And so it's hard to communicate in English. Last question. God picked the Greek language for the New Testament. Does it then uh, conclude that the people in Greece who know Greek language have the original Bible? So, great question. If God chose Greek for the uh, original language for the New Testament, does that mean the people in Greece have the original Bible? Actually, it's Koine, it's the ancient Greek, which is different from modern day Greek. So, the first church I was the lead pastor in, we actually paid for a translation of the Greek Bible into the Greek language for modern-day Greeks. That sounds bizarre, doesn't it? But we trans- we had, there has to be a Greek translation for modern-day Greeks because the language has changed. So it's, it's a different language in many ways today. And then, you know, we've got translation. Like in the English, we have so many versions of yes. translations. But if it is translated in, for example, my ethnic mother tongue, there's only one translation. 
Yeah. How do we know that is the well, good question. So in your native language, there's only one translation. In English, we have many translations. I think that's simply because of the vast uh, popularity of the English language. And uh, the English language evolves very quickly. And so words mean different things today than they did five years ago, ten years ago. Um, the word gay, for example, you know, very different today than it did 20 years ago, um, which makes some songs awkward. Um, so... <laughs> So I, I think it's, some of that is market-driven, meaning there's a market for people to purchase these translations, and plus there's a need as well. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll talk more about translations later in this series. One last question, sir. I think that people from all these different translations and all the writing and reading and whatnot, they get confused all together. Yes, you're saying, you know, when we have all these translations, it confuses people. If you have an open heart, you read the word of God, God will speak. I agree with you that God will speak. Um, but I, I, I see the need for translations. I, I think you can get to a point, I agree with you, you can get to a point where, okay, seriously, do we need another English translation? Um, I think we have a really good option right now. But as we'll see, I think there's a reason why we, all these translations have purposes and there's reasons for them and we'll explain them. Uh, because it goes back to, we're always finding new manuscripts. And they're helping us to refine even more closely what we have. So next time we get together, we'll be we're going to talk about inerrancy. Is the Bible inerrant? Well, we say it is, but are there not mistakes in the Bible? And what do you do if you find mistakes? We're going to talk about that next time we get together. God bless you, folks. <laughs>